Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's been five weeks since the original emergency measures have been put in place here in Ontario. Is it time that we let people return to their workplaces? And what would the implications be? We'll talk about that. Long-term care facilities have been hit harder than anybody else in Canada due to COVID-19. Advocates say much more needs to be done. We'll talk with Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, to get some details. And Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Erd joins us for the monthly Chiefs Town Hall. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, some people are suggesting good news. I'm not so sure if that's necessarily the case here. What we're noticing is in some areas, there is a leveling off of uh, reported new cases of COVID-19. And uh, some are suggesting that, hey, it's maybe time to relax some of the restrictions that have been put in place. Some going even more extremely than that, of course. Uh, Donald Trump is suggesting that he open business once again. Uh, it, it, May 1st, I guess, is the day that he's looking at right now. But even on this side of the border, some political leaders are suggesting maybe it's time to uh, just just to take our foot off the gas for just a little bit. Maybe it's time to, time to get back to whatever they consider to be normal. However, a recent poll that was done uh, on a national level here suggested that uh, Canadians, not quite sure about that. Here are the results. The poll for Leger and AC studies says 29% of Canadians believe restrictions on workplace and leisure activities should only be lifted once the country is free of any new cases for at least two weeks. It also suggests that Canadians are being very conservative about taking the chance of returning to work. Uh, probably the same sentiment that Ontario Premier Doug Ford is feeling. Yesterday, uh, the Premier announced that he was extending the state of emergency here in the province of Ontario and not going to relax the restrictions. Uh, I think it was the smart move to make. Uh, other political leaders are uh, not quite so sure about that. And, and this is where we get into this debate again about the balance about public health and, and the economy. And uh, it's, it's, it's a very, very important debate. We get that. But uh, are we starting to change our priorities here? And what are the implications if we do start sending people back to work and simply say, okay, let's try to return to the way things were four or five months ago? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Allison Thompson. Allison is an associate professor of pharmaceutical sciences and a professor of public health services and uh, public health sciences at the Dalai Lena School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, thank you so for, for so much for uh, joining us today. I really appreciate it, especially at what looks like it might be a pivotal time when it comes to some important decisions to be made here. It sure is, and it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out for sure. Well, let's let's talk about it. We're getting right down to the, the quick of the, the decision here. Uh, and I don't want to go to the extreme of what Donald Trump is saying. Let's open up everything up for business. But, I mean, even some of the other leaders who were being rather cautious about this are suggesting maybe maybe it's time to relax this just a little bit. Uh, what are the implications or repercussions uh, if, if we were to simply say, uh, okay, you know, we, it, there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel. At least that's the way some analysts are looking at this right now. Uh, I'm not so sure if that's the case, but uh, do we take our foot off the gas here right now or do we just keep on going the way we're going? Well, I think what we're seeing is um, possibly a, that the curve is starting to flatten. Uh, I, I'm not sure that we can say that with any certainty at the moment just because of the delay in uh, the accuracy of our numbers, right, that we, we are retrospectively mm-hmm. updating case reports all the time. So say it was starting to flatten, that's a result of the actions that we have taken, um, which are the ones that are difficult for for many, many people. So we're starting to see that that's working. But 
uh, I think we have to remember that the whole point of flattening the curve was to avoid a real spike in cases. And if we were to return to normal at this point, we would see probably an even greater spike than was originally predicted because so many more people are in the community with this disease now. So when we were talking about not doing anything at the beginning of all this, there were only a a handful of cases. Now there are thousands of people with COVID-19 walking around. If we were to reopen the economy completely, we would see uh, that all of that hard work that everybody has been putting in uh, and adjusting their lives would have been wasted. So I think we need to sort of stay the course here. But I think what people are reacting to is there's this sense that um, some of this is not fair. Uh, on on certain groups of people. So we know that the economy is is suffering, but we know that there are particular segments of the population that are being economically harder hit than others, and that, that is not fair. So we need to be looking at what we can do to help those people. The concern, I think you mentioned this to us in one of our previous conversations, Professor, is, uh, you know, by the way, the numbers are still increasing, especially here in Ontario. Not as much as they were, but they are still increasing. So uh, for those that are suggesting that, you know, we're we're reaching a a leveling off, no, we're not, not yet. Uh, We're just slowing the increase right now. And that doesn't seem to me to be the time to say, okay, uh, our job is finished here. we're, We're nowhere near that point, are we? I don't think so. I mean, it's so hard to say, but I, I, I think we can say with with quite a lot of certainty that if we were to just remove all these restrictions on people's movement at this point in time, it would be a disaster. And so, really, what you're you're seeing is people asking for short-term economic gain, um, you know, but at what cost? You know, we, we know that it will cost many, many people their lot their lives, and ultimately. In the long term, the economy won't be able to bounce back as well as it could as if we prevent all these deaths. So I think we're, we're trading short-term economic gain um, for long-term pain, which is really um, not not going to benefit people's health, and it's not going to be of benefit to the economy long-term. And the numbers is, is troubling, and they should still be troubling to us, I guess, when we look at new cases, and there still are new cases in many parts of this country right now. Uh, they do not take into account the people that have not been identified and haven't been tested. Uh, and and I don't even know what that number might be, Professor. The number of people that were showing symptoms or complained to their family doctor and the advice they got was, well, you're not a, a frontline worker. You've probably got it. Go home and isolate yourself. Uh, well, we don't count that as a statistic. And we don't even know how many people are out there that, that are dealing with the virus right now that all of a sudden if we relax these restrictions uh, could be spreaders. And we also know, of course, that there are people that show no symptoms that could be carrying the virus. So we're, we're still on pretty shaky ground here, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I think we can say that even with the cases that we know about, that there would be a huge spike in in numbers. But you're right. We don't know what the denominator is here. There is a, a, it's a very good guess that there are many, many people who have either had it or are still dealing with it that are not even on the radar of public health. So uh, I think that's an important point to remember as well. And, and, I mean, I'm hearing from people on the front lines, and I know that, uh, you know, the discussion now seems to have evolved into, uh, as you say, some people that need to get back to work. And, you know, but I've, I've talked to people like, for instance, the construction industry before they put the moratorium on construction work. 
and the workers themselves were frightened uh, to go into work because of the the lack of, of physical distancing that was going on and the lack of proper equipment. We're hearing this from frontline health workers. We're hearing this from people that work in grocery stores right now. I I, I wonder, and I think we need uh, to legitimately question, Professor, whether we're ready to to start easing the tensions right now because we don't we still don't have the testing kits that we need. We still don't have the proper equipment for people. Uh, we're seem to be inviting danger if we were to make a a, a, a massive change here in policy. I think so too, and I think that we need to make sure that when we do release some of these restrictions, that we have the ability to do the contact tracing and the testing that would be required. So that's a lot of surveillance and a lot of testing that needs to happen, and we just don't have that capacity right now. So uh, we we need to get that in place before we even talk about about this. And you know, it's possible that you know people are proposing to to. Uh, do sort of a, a rotating uh, back-to-work schedule for people or, you know, on again, off again, depending on the spread of the disease. But I think that, too, causes huge economic disruption. So, it's you know, we're not modeling a lot of the things that we maybe should be modeling. Uh, we're, we're spending a lot of time on epidemiology curves and, um, you know, broadly on the economy's health, but we're not modeling the impact on on certain groups of people who are really hard hit by this. We're not modeling the impact on, um, you know, the impact on kids and families on staying home. So these are other social costs that we need to factor into all of these calculations. Well, we do see some of these numbers, though, Professor, and, and I think this is what some people are hanging their hat on, is uh, they're comparing what we have today uh April 14th with uh, some of the projections from two or three weeks ago. And, and the projections, of course, in Ontario and other places were pretty dire. Uh, and even here the locally in the Hamilton area, about the number of ICU beds that they were probably going to need. And we, we, we're not there yet, which is great news. We seem to, to have no, missed that yet so far, but I think that's the key word in here is, is so far. Uh, because we, if, if we let up here right now, do we run the risk of actually starting to meet or exceed some of those those dire predictions? Yeah, and this is a perpetual problem for public health. You know, when we do the job right, people go, what was that about? You know, this isn't nearly as bad as you said it was going to be, but that's because we're doing something that's working. And so it doesn't mean that we're we're very bad at predicting these things. It means that there are many variables that go into these models, and they're not perfect. You know, modeling is not an exact science, and as much as we would like to know when we can get back to work, we just can't say with any certainty. So I think I think we do know that we would be taking a big gamble on people's lives if we were to release those restrictions now and let people go back to work just as they were before. So, you know, do we want to overreact or do we want to underreact? I don't think we've ever had a pandemic where people were mad that people overreacted. So, you know, I think we... A, precaution, a precautionary approach is probably the best thing to do here. By comparison, it's interesting. If you look at some of the uh, the, the, the comments we're hearing from, from pundits and from, from uh, experts and critics about this, there seems to be a common theme here that, uh, that just about every government, including Canada, the United States, and, and of course some of the European countries, that uh, they were too slow to react to this. And that, there seems to be almost a consensus now that we weren't prepared, we could have been and should have done much better. Uh, and even if you take that with, you know, with even a grain of truth, would we be just as egregious a, a, a problem if we decided to, to jump out of this too soon, too, at the other end of it? Absolutely. And, you know, none of this is 
you know, this is not an exact science. And hindsight is always going to be twenty twenty about when we should have acted and when, you know, what we could have done better. And I think that the, the key thing is to just make sure we continue. We know this is working. So let's stay the course and let's find a way to address the concerns of people who are suffering economically from this because it, you know, the, the pitting of public, the public's health against the economy is not a really helpful way to think about it because they're, they're inextricably intertwined. We, people's health depends on the economy and the economy depends on people being healthy. So let's stop talking about it in that way and let's try and think about how we can get both back on better footing. Well, our uh, friend Dr. Suchi, of course, down in the States, who's become almost a folk hero, I guess, to some of us. We see him on a daily basis. I, I think he used that very same analogy. He says the economy's not going to get well till people get well. And, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, when we see, and, and besides, this idea of, about flattening the curve uh, basically means no new cases. And, and we're not there yet, and, and that's, that's somewhat troubling to us. And I guess there's a concern here about the implications. I think one, one analogy I heard about this last night is it's like somebody who goes on a weight loss regimen and loses 15 or 20 pounds and then says, Hey, that's great. Now I can start eating pizza and ice cream again. You're going to put the weight back on if you do that. You know, you've got to be very careful about that sort of stuff. And I think, you know, we need to, I guess, stay the course. And I'm glad to hear that some political leaders are starting to see the wisdom in that. Yeah, it's a tough sell. You know, people are suffering from from these restrictions. And so, you know, in order to get people's continued buy-in to cooperate with these public health measures, we need to make sure that people are being treated fairly. And so I think I think really looking at who is being hardest hit by this and what can we do to ease the suffering, you know, in the meantime, uh, is should be a part of this conversation. You know, we're not, COVID-19 is not the only problem that we have right now, and we can't forget about all these other uh you know, economic and and health conditions like addictions and mental health, which are really, really being hit hard by these things. That's a a concern that's starting to get some discussion right now that I think is going to play a big part when we do get into recovery mode here. And and when you say that phrase, a lot of people start thinking economic recovery. This is it's just causing a huge, huge problem, and 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 I think creating a large a toll here on on mental health issues that uh, a lot of people are dealing with. Uh, we're told, by the way, that even some of the people that are suffering through uh, COVID nineteen, uh, that, that obviously there's a amount of stress, physical and, and emotional stress that goes on with this, and there's some questions now about what kind of long term effect that's going to have. But uh, I think all of us probably fall under that umbrella right now. That this this is in many people's way, probably one of the most stressful times in our lives. Absolutely. There's there's lots of reasons to be extremely anxious for ourselves and for our loved ones and for our communities. And, you know, finding finding ways to tend to our mental health is, is difficult because we don't live in a society that tends to, to value those things. So it's it's tough. There's a stigma associated with it, but I think... I think we need to be paying more attention to the fact that a lot of those services are actually not available at the moment, too, because of the the measures taken to control the outbreak or redeployment of, of physicians to other areas. So, you know, getting people the help that they need needs to be a priority, too. Absolutely. Well, we'll see what the Prime Minister has to say about this, about setting the course, I guess, for the next little while. Professor, as always, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate your input. Yeah, my pleasure. We'll talk again soon. That's it. Professor Allison Thompson from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we look at some of the numbers here for COVID-19, and uh, 
we need to reassure people again that, uh, yes, there seems to be a flattening in some areas, but we're nowhere near where we want to be or need to be in situations like this. But as we start to do some analysis here, one of the great tragedies in this country, as we look at how COVID-19 is sweeping the country, is the tragedy of the number of people who are dying in long-term care facilities. And uh, Canada's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Theresa Tam, touched on that yesterday. All the chief medical officers, all the province territories are trying to do the best they can to strengthen the response in in that area because that is um, driving the severe outcomes, I think, in in Canada. To be more specific about that, uh, as the doctor was saying, close to half of the country's 724 COVID-19 deaths as of midday Monday were in long-term care where aging and vulnerable residents live and eat in close proximity to each other and where staff have been carriers and oftentimes have been also infected by the virus. So what are we going to do about this? What can be done about this? Joining us to talk about this, uh, Marissa Lennox, who is the Chief Policy Officer with the Canadian Association of Retired People, or CARP. Uh, Marissa, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us on this very important topic. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is, uh, it's frightening actually to look at some of the numbers and anybody who has a, a loved one or who has ever had a loved one uh, in long-term care facilities, we understand that there are certain challenges with those facilities at the best of times, but it just seems as if the most vulnerable here are the ones that are being impacted the most in this circumstance. You're right. Uh, when you hear those numbers, 50% of deaths in the country have been in long-term care homes, uh, it's enough to make you sick. And you wonder, you know, what are we doing and what could we be doing better? Now, there are a number of reasons outbreaks are difficult to control in long-term care homes. Um, one of the reasons is because of the way that this virus presents itself. Uh, uh, patients may not always spike a fever in a long-term care home because of their uh, weakened immune systems. So while some homes have been testing people's temperature and that's good, it may not always be a great indicator that someone is positive for COVID. So one of the things we've been saying is that all staff and uh, residents in long-term care homes need to be tested uh, rigorously and systematically. I mean, regularly tested for COVID-19. And up until recently, really up until the tragedy from this weekend in Dorval at the Maison Heron home, we hadn't heard, uh, you know, our leaders commit to doing that. Now it's a good thing that the premier has come out and said that he'll start systematically testing long-term care homes. But again, these things, they take time to mobilize. They take time to get the tests to where they need to be. So it's a real challenge. Um, another thing that you touched on even in your introduction is the practice of staff working at multiple residents. This yeah. is a huge challenge because it increases the risk of spreading infections. So even where families are barred from visiting patients, in some cases, families have been in quarantine for, you know, the last few weeks. They've been staying home 24-7, but you have nurses and healthcare workers coming in and out of all kinds of homes. This presents a serious threat to the residents in these homes. Let's, let's spend a couple of minutes talking about that for people who may not be aware of the fact that you have staff that are working in, in multiple residences in places like this. Because I know mm -hmm. uh, it's it's been an ongoing problem all the time. And, and one of the reasons for that, quite frankly, uh, is oftentimes the staff are not given enough hours. And uh, this is very much uh, in line with what we've talked about, about dealing with poverty and dealing with low-income situations. Some people actually have to work in two or three different locations to make enough money to pay their bills, uh, mm -hmm. simply because they're not getting enough hours in, in the one facility. Facility. Uh, so this has been going on for quite some time, and this, this problem is really rampant right through the industry, isn't it? 
That's right. I think we need to take a hard look at staffing in our long-term care and retirement homes, too, and need to strengthen the full-time staff capacity at these homes, uh, which ultimately improves continuity of care as well, right? Because now you've got care workers in the home with that resident knowledge where they're able to take care of them and better meet their needs. We know that there are a lot of part-time workers that are jumping from long-term care home to long-term care home, or worse, Uh, In the case of retirement homes, some part-time workers may be starting at a private residence in the morning and could be going to a retirement home in the afternoon. So these things are really problematic. It's a real challenge, but there's an opportunity for the provinces to come in and, and mandate that if you're working at one home, you stay at one home. It's just a challenge because we know that there is a huge staffing capacity issue at the moment uh, with care workers dropping out because either they're fearful of showing up to work or because they're sick. Uh, there are so many reasons why we're having shortages, chronic shortages. And let's be frank, you're right. The chronic shortages exist well existed well before this pandemic, and we did very little to prepare for this. Yeah, and so it's just one of those problems we knew with the industry and say, well, it'll work itself out. Well, all of a sudden you get this this extra thing coming in, which in this case is this terrible pandemic, and it's, it just exacerbates the situation. And the worst case, uh, of course, example of that was the one you just referenced was the one in Dorvel, where 31 residents died over the last month. And, uh, well, basically the staff base abandoned them in many cases. Some people got showed up for work and said there were residents begging for water and soaked in urine and feces. Now, that's, that's a worst-case scenario, but it, I think it does point to your situation and what you just mentioned, Marissa, where a lot of staff members now are fearful of even going to work because of the poor working conditions. That's right, poor working conditions, and they're not being equipped with proper protective equipment. And so they're not being told you need to wear, you know, they're not being given the, the, the masks, the heavy duty masks and the gloves. Um, just a week ago, I read a story where there was sort of a whistleblower in a long term care home that said, we have them, they're available, but there hasn't been an outbreak in the home. So we're reserving them for an outbreak. Well, that's just the wrong thing to be doing right now, because we know that this virus sometimes is asymptomatic. It doesn't present itself. If we're not testing the patients and how easy it is to spread, it can be an absolute disaster. Um, with respect to what happened in Draval, I mean, obviously, it looks as though, and I'd be remiss to speak out of turn because we don't have the full scope of the investigation, mm-hmm. but this is more of a unique situation insofar as the operators were criminally negligent. Um, and it's likely their license will be revoked and the home will be shut down as a result of this. That isn't so much what we're seeing. That isn't actually at all what we're seeing across the country, but we are seeing severe shortages in staffing, um, challenges with disease prevention, um, challenges with, you know, how are you isolating people in these homes? That's another big issue. Uh, You know, when someone tests positive, they're meant to go into isolation or we're told that homes are supposed to be clustering patients. Well, how are you doing that when a lot of these homes have communal dining, have communal living spaces? In some of these homes, bedrooms are separated by just a curtain. There are, there are common bathing areas. So now you're bathing, showering in the same room. It's very difficult to isolate in these types of communal living settings. 
with uh, Marissa Lennox, uh, Chief Policy Officer with CARP, talking about the, the crisis that's going on in long-term care facilities. And, and a lot of the stuff we're talking about, and I'm glad you brought this point up, uh, we've been talking about it for years. I mean, we've had discussions on this program over the years, uh, Marissa, about, about uh, working conditions in long-term care facilities for staff and for residents, uh, about, uh, as you say, under-service, not enough staff, not enough security, and there have been some ongoing problems. Uh, so you've got people that are working in two and sometimes multiple facilities to try to make enough money to make ends meet in their own personal situation. But I'm also being told now that an awful lot of people just don't want to work in the industry right now because of these working conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't come as a, as a big surprise. Um, certainly people are fearful of showing up to work. And, and, and you know, in fairness to those that are showing up, they are real heroes. I mean, they're putting their lives on the line. They're really risking their life to go into these environments. Um, so they're truly, the, the ones that are working, our healthcare workers that are on the front lines are absolute heroes. But you're right. There are there are instances where people are fearful of showing up to work because they um, maybe they're sick, um, maybe they are vulnerable, maybe they have their own conditions that they're working. Maybe they're pregnant. There are a number of reasons why someone may choose to not show up to this environment um, because of the pandemic. But also the working conditions are just so difficult, particularly when you're short staffed. When you're working with people in long term care, their needs are very great. A lot of people are wheelchair bound, they need to be changed, they need to be showered. And when you have a shortage of staff, the first things that go are dental care and bathing. And so we're hearing, you know, these horror stories of people's care needs really not being met. But we have heard these stories even before the pandemic. So I think this is really shining a light on the need to invest in this sector to make it more valuable. How are we valuing the people that are taking care of the most vulnerable members of our society? Um, And it's regrettable that it took a pandemic to get there. But I think we are starting to have that conversation now. What exacerbates the situation as far as the residents are concerned? I guess, well, there's two or three things going on here. First of all, a fear of, of, of the pandemic, of course, about COVID-19 itself. Uh, they don't want to contract that, obviously, because by definition, they're, they are the frail and elderly, and which means they're in a high-risk category to begin with. But even in, in the, in the situations pre-pandemic, uh, uh, Marissa, the, the, the thing here was there, there was at least some family uh, or loved ones that would come from time to time to take some of the pressure off the staff. In, in this situation, they can't do that. No, you're right. Um, I was uh, driving to the grocery store uh, just the other day, and I saw I was looking at a, at a retirement home, and I saw three families standing outside of this home, peering through the window, uh, talking to their loved one. Um, we cannot underestimate the impact and, and, and just the, the resource that family members served to the healthcare workers working in these homes. Um, because you're right, they would visit every day. Um, I remember when I had uh, I had two grandmothers in long-term care, and, and my parents, or you know, my sisters and I, we would we would we would cycle through, and we would go and we would sit with them, and we'd visit them, because oftentimes we would show up, and they'd be you know just sitting in front of a television, not really doing very much. So. Yeah. Um, it really contributed to reduced isolation when family members can get involved and we can't underestimate the value of family. And it's been a huge, uh, it's had a huge impact on the health and quality of life of the, of the residents living in these homes because that it's 
it's just not the case anymore. It's, you know, homes are restricted to essential visitors and healthcare workers. And so really no one, and where there's an outbreak, no one is coming in and out. So it can be very lonely, very isolating. There's another group we need to add into this, too, are the volunteers and, and uh, that do visit from time to time and try to help out. And, and of course, they're frozen up because of what's happening here. So it, it just it makes a bad situation that much worse. I guess part of the frustration here as well is that, you know, as we've seen this, and this is all new to all of us. I mean, you know, for most of us, we've never been through a pandemic before. So we're kind of making this up as we go along. I mean, we I guess sometimes we kind of have the bare bones of a of an action plan. But, you know, we're finding, oh, there's a shortcoming here. We need to do this. Uh, and they've done that to their credit. The governments have done that uh, vis-a-vis, uh, you know, some salaries and wages and, and people that are concerned about their, their economic viability. But this is a major problem that has, has come up and has, has really, uh, I, I guess, you know, been understood scored by what's going on here uh and and all i'm hearing from the government officials right now god bless them is yeah we need to address that well you need to address it now people are dying on a daily basis no you're right um i think that the government did a pretty good job you know for specifically the ontario government they they really prided they campaigned and they really prided themselves on getting their economic house in order um and that enabled them to respond well efficiently effectively to the financial crisis at hand, uh, but we did nothing to prepare for the healthcare crisis. And we've been so fortunate that our hospitals, as far as I can tell, have not been inundated um, to the extent that was initially predicted. So that's been good. Um, but we have seen a surge in cases in long-term care homes, I think greater than what was initially predicted. And a lot of this could have been prevented um, if we had to you know if we had taken the right steps to ensure that there was enough staffing and again like i understand in the case of this pandemic too you know where homes thought that they were they were fully staffed and then of course someone drops out and it can happen so quickly and the escalating effect can happen so fast someone gets sick then they don't show up to work and now that shift is is vacant and so and so forth, and it becomes a, a very serious ripple effect. But at the same time, could the government have taken steps to invest in this sector to make sure that there were enough people on standby, ready to be mobilized in the event that this was to, you know, strike our long-term care homes? And I just don't think that we did that. Uh, and I know that they have attempted to try to address this in some way, shape, or form. And there was some conversations, as you know, a couple of days ago that, well, maybe some of these residents uh, could actually move back in with family for a short period of time. And and that may, may be something that's relevant to, to a small percentage of them. But an awful lot of the people that are there uh, can't do that simply because the family doesn't have the resources to look after them properly. That is right. Um, so our message on this has really been one of enabling choice. Uh, because we have received a ton of calls from CART members asking whether or not this is something they should do. My own colleague um, had her mother in long-term care, took her out. She's very high needs, and she's able to meet those needs at home with the support of her husband, and and they're doing quite well. Uh, But you're right. I mean, there are a lot of people that don't have the capacity to meet the care needs of their loved ones at home. If you do have the capacity to, um, and you know, and 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 you are concerned, and you've had a conversation with your loved one, and you do feel 
like this is the right decision, then what CARP has been saying is that option is available to you. And what we've been urging governments to do is to eliminate any barriers that would enable that to happen. Now, mm-hmm. we've heard from some homes that have said, well, you may have to, you may risk losing your bed. Well, that's just disgraceful. At this time, when we know what's happening in our long-term care homes, wouldn't you be welcoming the opportunity to maybe send a loved one, a, a resident home to their family where their needs can be met, where they can confidently be met? And this reduces pressure on your staff, um, reduces anxiety and stress on the staff in long-term care homes. So, you know, we've urged governments to basically come out and say your home will be, your bed will be reserved. We understand during a pandemic why you would feel that your healthcare needs are maybe, you know, in a could better be served in a different environment. Well, they did that for employment. I mean, the premier, you know, said that nobody's going to lose their job if they've been laid off. This, you know, he, that's that's one of the provisions of, of the emergency legislation that they've passed. Uh, why not do the same thing here? I mean, anybody who's ever had a loved one in a long-term care facility understands you don't just decide, oh, I'll take this one uh, and, and we'll move in next week. It's a long, arduous process to even get into one of these facilities and, and to think that you might lose your bed and have to go all the way back to the bottom of the line again. It's that, that, that boy, that, talk about adding stress to a situation. So different, you're absolutely right. So different provinces have done different things. As far as I understand, the Premier of Quebec has said that you won't lose your bed. But in Ontario, what they've said is if you do decide to leave, if you do decide to leave, we will put you at the top of the list when you decide to return. So basically, they're trying to expedite the process to enable someone to return to that very home when the pandemic is over, when they're comfortable returning home. But, you know, it's interesting, too, because when we talk about the need to effectively isolate people that are tested positive, you know, one of the biggest challenges is that there aren't any free beds in these homes, you mm-hmm. know where you can actually isolate people. How are you clustering them? How are you isolating them when there isn't a lot of free space in these communal living environments? So this could be, you know, a silver lining. This may be an opportunity for you to better isolate individuals that do test positive if you have a free bed available. Um, the other thing is, as far as I understand, certainly not in homes, certainly in homes where there have been outbreaks, they're not accepting any patients in and out of the, or any new residents in and out at this time. Well, at least the conversation is taking place, and I guess that's the first step in this. And uh, I'm sure that they're all thankful that they've got an organization like CARP that are advocating for them. Marissa, keep fighting the good fight, and uh, we'll stay in touch. Hopefully we'll see some uh, better news on this in the days ahead. Thank you for having me. Take care. Marissa Lennox, of course, uh, from uh, CARP. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's the Chief's Town Hall. Hamilton Chief of Police Eric Gert is joining us, and uh, we will take your phone calls, 905-645-3221. That's the local number, 905-645-3221. Star 9900 is a toll-free number for you. You can also reach us on email, bkelly at 900chml.com. And on Twitter, at CHML Bill Kelly, your questions, your comments for Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert, who joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Chief, thanks so much for the time. Uh, I hope you're well today. I am, and we're physically distanced by miles, so that ought to meet the requirements. Uh, yeah, I think we've uh, we've covered that. We can, we can check that box right now. But a lot of people are working from home. Uh, but uh, frontline workers are not working from home. Um, I mean, Hamilton Police Services are still in full gear. Uh, and that's the first question I wanted to ask you. With the the crisis now moving into, I guess it's about the fifth or sixth week here in this area, uh, Chief. Uh, let's talk about the impact this has had on police services and on the staffing levels and and the the officers themselves. 
So our staffing levels are good actually right now. We've only had one member present with mild symptoms uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, obviously our members are using their personal protective equipment and from a service perspective we moved to what's called the North Half Mask Respirator. It's got the dual cones on front and it's a neoprene mask. Uh, we issued that about 10 years ago as a result of toxic things like car fires, sudden deaths where we may have to don the equipment. And, you know, back then it probably would have been a little uh, disconcerting for members of the public to see it, but certainly not now. So our advantage in that is it meets the requirements uh, of what an N95 mask will do. So they both do the same thing, but we can use the equipment for a number of months before the cones have to be replaced. Of course, you've got to disinfect it and all those other things. We've issued uh, goggles as well, and in certain cases we'll just uh, don other protective equipment. Uh, really from a response perspective, uh, where we might go into calls before, and it's really just a medical call that EMS can handle. And, you know, certainly our hat's off to both the EMS fire for all the medical calls they've done through the years as first responders. Uh, but they've been dealing with things, anything from TB to SARS to so on and so on. So, uh, and I don't, you know, discount uh, how they're affected, but certainly they've been alive to the issue for much longer. Uh, but we do have equipment. Uh, we are responding. Our, our calls for service, um, while some have decreased, others have not, and the range of calls over the weekend was really something. So uh, our members continue to respond, and in terms of deployment, we've taken people who might be doing like divisional youth officer calls or school liaison. Obviously, we're not with the school shut responding to those directly. Uh, we'll still use youth calls. Uh, but those officers have been redeployed in the front line, particularly in light of businesses uh, that might be closed up. So we've increased our patrols, whether through our action unit or otherwise, to look after security. Uh, we're doing an education campaign, as you know, with regard to a collection of people above the five. It used to be 50. And the social distancing or the physical distancing is largely being handled by bylaw enforcement. And uh, so we continue to all the regular calls for service. Uh, we are doing alternate response for our lower priority calls where an officer will call on the line and speak to the people and certainly we're getting pretty good response from the public understanding why that is and uh, we're seeing some gains in that area taking calls uh, off the board as we call it for service uh, but our front line is still responding to all the things uh, that they did previously. I'm quite it proud of their efforts and what they're doing. Personal protective equipment that you talked about Chief, is, is the wearing of that mandatory? Uh, it depends on the call for service, and obviously physical distancing is the starting point, and we look to the presentation of sy symptoms. We take our lead, as you know, from public health uh, at kind of three levels. Obviously, Dr. Tam at the federal level, and Dr. Williams at the provincial level, and Dr. Um, <coughs> Richardson at the local level. Uh, they're pretty much congruent on what to do, but as soon as we get somebody who does present with symptoms, we have a whole protocol for transport, getting them treated, whether we keep them in custody or not, depending on the circumstances. And where we don't need to keep people in custody, we won't. We've had recent amendments through the criminal code that allow our officers, being our officer in charge of the station, to release on a promise to appear with additional conditions. So the timing for that legislative change was good for us. And where we can release, we certainly will, but we're certainly uh, you know, cognizant of public safety issues. We don't just release everybody. And uh, you'll have seen probably an article in The Spectator uh, today uh, by Susan Claremont with Justice Leach talking mm -hmm. about changes in the courthouse, which we've been a part of in moving towards in any event, video conferencing, those type of things, 
for a number of years, and we've done e-disclosure, electronic disclosure. Uh, we implemented that a couple of years back. So really we're seeing the fruits of that um, labor pay off now in terms of being able to keep people out of the courtrooms, not having to transport where we don't need to. And, of course, you've got all that uh, potential exposure when you're doing the physical contact. So uh, really seeing the fruits of that uh, labor pay off. As I said to the board previously, you know, that's the stuff that's really not that exciting um, from an administrative perspective, but it's certainly, I won't know if I use the term exciting, but it's certainly uh, fulfilling to see those things happen now that allow us to uh, safeguard both the members of the public and ourselves. A couple of things about that. The reason I asked about the uh, the equipment and, and whether or not it was mandatory is I got an email, I guess it was a week or so ago, from a listener uh, that said she saw one of the officers, uh, I guess it was a traffic stop, uh, and wasn't sure whether or not the officer had gloves on, but certainly had no mask on, was leaning right inside the car. I don't know if it's looking at the driver's license or whatever the case might be, uh, which really uh, was obviously a violation of physical distancing. And but I, I'm just wondering if this is uh, something that they've been schooled on. I mean, obviously this is a, a very fluid situation right now, but are officers told if they're going to have any contact at all that they must have those masks on? No, we haven't moved to that, and certainly in policing we haven't moved to that across the province at this point. And as I say, we rely on uh, a number of the under indicators first, uh, and our officers have discretion. Uh, again, to wear a half-mask respirator for an entire 12-hour shift is really not practical. And, uh, you know, as recently as we saw um, a, a video put together by the OPP and a doctor who is on their staff who actually works in um, the emergency where they have COVID people, um, who have uh, have the symptoms, you know, obviously there's concerns about that. Uh, but no, we rely on a number of things and their own judgment at this point, but there's nothing as an edict that's come that says you must wear it 24-7. Uh, but common sense would dictate, though, I understand that, and you wouldn't ask an officer to wear that for a whole shift. But if they're going to have a face-to-face contact with somebody, that you'd think that obviously they'd be taking all precautions. And, and I think that was the concern that this listener had, is that it didn't seem to be uh, that officer was taking the precautions. If you're going to have, a, you have your face you know, six inches away from somebody else, you don't know whether or not they're symptomatic. So, uh, But anyway, it's, it's, it's something that jumped out at her. I just thought, well, you know, just, is the chief aware of this? It's interesting to know. So you're, you're suggesting it's a judgment call then? Well, it remains so on a number of fronts is, uh, you know, uh, and again, on a traffic stop alone, just from a safety perspective, generally speaking, you would stand, I don't, I'd certainly stick my head inside a car as a general practice, never mind COVID, but anytime officer safety, and you can speak to somebody at a distance back from the car and still be able to hear them. As for documents, that's a different thing when they're produced. And as I understand, for the most part, provided somebody shows it to you, we don't necessarily have to take physical possession of that as well. But, you know, uh, we do have uh, interaction with members of the public. There is a small percentage right now that are affected. Um, You know, should that change, uh, then we will certainly adapt relative to what public health indicates we should handle the calls for service. Uh, But, you know, in all instances, we're not at this point wearing it 24-7. Chief, what about changes in protocol because of this? We obviously we mentioned the thing about physical distancing, and, and uh, there's a concern here about contact and and being in environments where the, you know the virus might be present. Uh, is is that changing the way that uh, that uh, that officers are going to do their jobs? Uh, as you say, when they go out on a call, 
just as a for instance, and I know it's an apples and oranges comparison, but you know, people in the service industry, cable TV guys or whatever, they will not go into your house during this this crisis. Uh, they just you know, you, uh, will work outside but not inside the house. I obviously officers, if there's something going on, are going to have to do that. But are they trying to minimize their contact with people at this stage? The short answer is yes. And everything from our dispatchers making inquiries about anybody who may be presenting with symptoms, um, we get that information ahead of time. There's been a recent change uh, with the Ministry of Health that we'll be able to access a portal uh, for those people who have been um, diagnosed with the COVID who may be recovering at home. Uh, but of course, that information is uh, and pro- right or properly so uh, safeguarded in terms of distribution and use. So it's just specifically for uh, the health of our members. Uh, relative to physical distancing, they practice that. You know, when you've got to go and lay hands on somebody and it's an arrest and it may be an urgent situation, either domestic or whatever, because our calls for service really haven't changed, um, then, you know, we're going to have to do what we need to do. And, uh, again, for uh, we're working with public health to see if we can get um, diagnosis like anybody else for our own members should they have been exposed to people either say they have COVID or may present with those symptoms. You know, right up into including the administering of Narcan, uh, you know, for an overdose. Uh, We will take precautions uh, and don the mask, obviously, you know, seconds Mm -hmm. mean everything, um, but we have continued to administer those. And during this pandemic crisis in the last couple of weeks, we still continue to administer Narcan. But again, we look to public health, uh, what is the best practice? This is, again, research that's not just happening in lo- local jurisdiction, but really across Canada and worldwide for that matter. Um, so, yes, we take precautions relative to arrests and transports of persons, as I've said. Um, if, in fact, we have to retain custody, we've had cells designated for that purpose. We've increased the cleaning uh, and uh, disinfecting of all those stations, physical distancing within our building. We don't have the parades with multiple members that we used to have. Uh, most of the conferences I'm doing with my senior command are much like you and I are doing. Uh, we're all kind of sitting in our offices doing a teleconference, but as an essential service, uh, we still have to be out there doing the work and uh, obviously uh, liaising with the Emergency Operations Center. Uh, Paul Johnson is a director currently um, and Dr. Richardson as well. And of course, I've been on uh, the Cable 14 with the town hall answering some of those questions. But this is in fact a public health emergency and that's why we're taking our lead from them, but we still have to do business. You mentioned uh, you had a, a high volume of calls on the weekend, and, and you, some calls, of course, uh, some of the, the, the character of the calls, I guess, are, are, there's, have decreased, others stayed the same. Uh, was it a higher than usual volume of calls that you got this weekend? And, and if so, what were they all about? I wouldn't say so, but I mean, where we're seeing some growth is uh, on our uh, calls to our coast hotline. Uh, our actual coast and mobile crisis rapid response team calls remain pretty much as they have through the months, uh, but we do know there's increased stress for people. We do know that, um, and I mean, the analogy I use, it's kind of like great to go up to the cottage in summer or even winter sometimes, but now we're kind of at the cottage in winter. You don't have a car. It's snowed in and you can't go out, and we all know what cabin fever is. So, um, you know, where people can get out and walk in those areas that they can, certainly recommend that. Um, You know, I'm not relying on common media, but most of the um, psychiatrists who've weighed in or healthcare providers have said, you know, limit yourself to, you know, maybe two days 
or two times a day, half hour each to get up to date on what's happening with COVID. But kind of, you know, 12 hour steady diet of it's not really a good idea uh, because you're watching it a full minute by minute. So we know that stress is up. We know that nature our calls uh, into coast have come as a result of that. And really, you know, you're seeing a world shift in a paradigm uh, where things we, and we're certainly social animals, um, you know, we want to connect with people. We have an inherent need to, and that's being stifled right now, and that leads to increased stress. So we're seeing the results of that. I saw an article the other day, not pertinent to Hamilton Police Services, but I guess it was a national story on one of the wire services about an increase in domestic violence in situations like this where people are forced to be with each other for long periods of time. Are you noticing that? Uh, we have tracked it quite closely. And in fact, last week it was down. Um, you know, the reporting of it, we know from uh, the literature certainly that uh, victims uh, may be exposed numerous times before they actually disclose. We do also know that they have to be in a safe place quite often to do that. It's far more hazardous uh, from their perspective when they phone the police in the midst of. Not that we don't recommend it, we do. And I think if you've, I've seen some spots relative to uh, the service providers beyond us saying they've seen an increased uh, uptake and phone calls and all that type of thing. So, I mean, the key message for us, if it is a uh, violent act in progress, we certainly still respond. Uh, we think it's important to do that. Uh, but we do know, I think, on the horizon, uh, depending on the duration of this, where you have um, increased stress, uh, the cycle of violence uh, as people are under stress uh, will precipitate it more often. Uh, so we're certainly concerned about that with people who feel they cannot get out of the house. But that doesn't mean you can't go for a walk, make a telephone call to us discreetly. Uh, I do know that you know the controlling nature of uh, many aggressors will be that they will not allow the victims to have phone or individual time. So, uh, you know, even contact to a friend to let us know or even reaching out to the, the shelters or otherwise, all still would recommend those practices. But we're certainly keeping a very close eye on it. Chief Erger, Chief, please, uh, thank you so much for the time. Please pass on our gratitude uh, to your officers uh, for the great job they're doing in this uh, very, very difficult situation. We really do appreciate it. Thanks very much, Bill, and uh, I appreciate having the time today on your show. Hamilton Chief of Police, Eric Gert. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.